Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast. Nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center, making long-term recovery a reality for patients like Cassie, who now supports others struggling with the disease. You can see Cassie's story and learn more at bmcaddiction.org. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Right as the Civil War was starting up, there was a British guy who had a theory. And the theory centered on the fact that democracy was a pretty good thing. Now, the American experiment hadn't been going very long, so there wasn't a lot of data to work with, and clearly things were not 100% great because we were about to start a war. But the British guy had confidence in the concept of democracy in general. And he also thought, the more we can expand the populations that are included in a democracy, women, minorities, that's all to the good. That British guy was named John Stuart Mill. And now we've been conducting that experiment for well over 200 years. So here's my question to you. How do you think it's going? Political philosopher Jason Brennan thinks, hmm, things could be better. Mill hypothesized that if we all deliberate together, we might still disagree at the end, but we'll kind of go, well, you have a good point, and you're reasonable, and I like you, and I can see what you're getting at. But not every hypothesis pans out, and he points to the work of a political scientist named Diana Mutz at the University of Pennsylvania. So she asked the following question. Um, You're a Democrat. Can you explain to me why someone might be a Republican? If you answer because they're stupid and evil, that predicts, (laughs) (laughs) which many people do, um, that predicts you're heavily engaged in politics. You give a lot of money to the Democratic Party, that you you protest and you write letters to the editor and you listen to political stations and things like that. If you say, well, I'm a Democrat, but let me explain the Republican point of view in a way that they would find appealing, that predicts you don't participate. Brandon is a professor of strategy, economics, ethics, and public policy at Georgetown University. And he's written a book about the issues he has with democracy, or at least democracy the way we have it set up in the U.S. It's called Against Democracy. He says Mill was a real optimist. But over the last half century, some compelling research has begun to pile up. And it looks, unfortunately, like Mill got got it backwards. Uh, politics tends to make us meaner and dumber rather than smarter and nicer. You know, it's interesting because very often when you see people interviewed, just random people interviewed on the street, you know, like sort of on TV news, people say, well, you know, if I'm, I'm between two candidates, I've got to do more research. I've got to find out more about their positions, which you would think is actually a really good answer. If what you're trying to do to figure out who you're going to vote for is go research how they feel about particular topics and see whether that makes sense, that seems like it would be making the average citizen smarter. It might if they actually did it. Um, but the thing is, they'll say that when you interview them because they feel like that's the right thing to say in the same way that like when you do an anonymous poll, people say they give more to charity than they actually do. They'll, they'll lie even though you don't know who they are. But they don't actually do the research. So when we study what Americans know about politics, it's incredibly depressing. You might think of it as the middle 50% of Americans know basically nothing. If we give them a multiple choice test, they do the equivalent of chance. The top quarter or so, which is likely to be your listeners, frankly, and I'm not saying to just suck up. It's just what the stats show. (laughs) (laughs) The top top quarter get like an A minus B plus on that test. And what's most depressing is the bottom quarter do worse than chance. Um, They make systematic mistakes, so they get the wrong answer every time. 
And and even then, when you think about doing your research, it sort of depends how you do it. So some people come into research with an open mind. They're like, I'm not sure what the truth is, and I want to discover it. But most people who are engaged heavily in politics are, are very biased. And what they do is they look for research that reinforces whatever they currently believe, and they ignore research that uh, says that they're wrong. In fact, typically, if you give people research that says that they're wrong, they actually become more convinced that they're right. So are you saying that what we really need is the smart people to run things? Yeah. So the the issue with democracy is not that people are inherently stupid. Um, People are good at running their own lives. They're smart and day to day. But it gives us sort of the wrong incentives. The problem here is the chance that my individual vote will make a difference is vanishingly small. Um, it depends on what state you live in. You, like if you're in Massachusetts, uh, sorry, your vote doesn't yeah. really count. <laughs> it's not a good um, chance. Yeah. I'm in, I live in Northern Virginia, so uh, I actually have like something like a one in 20 million chance of being the decisive voter in the next presidential election. That's, that's pretty good, actually. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Because our chances of being decisive are so small, we don't have a very strong incentive to process information in a rational way or even to gather information. So a metaphor I like to use is if I'm about to cross the street, I look both ways, not because I find traffic interesting, but because I need to know what's happening or I might die. And if I see a Mack truck barreling towards me, I wouldn't dare indulge the fantasy that it's actually the Transformer Optimus Prime, my childhood hero, coming to take me to an adventure because I'll die if I'm wrong about that. But uh, in politics, I can afford to be ignorant. I can afford not to look both ways. And I can afford to indulge the fantasies. And so, unfortunately, most of us do that. Okay, so let's take the other side of the the idea of elitist uh, helping others, the FDR idea. You know, the, the conservative William F. Buckley made this case that he'd rather have something like the top 1,000 people, the first 1,000 people in the Boston phone book um, yeah. run the country rather than the 1,000 people on the faculty at Harvard, right? With the idea that knowledge is not that helpful. So what makes you even think that knowledge, that elitism is helpful to running the country? Yeah, you know, he might be right that it would be better to have the first thousand people in the Cambridge phone book than the Harvard faculty, but that doesn't mean that <laughs> America as a whole versus like some subset of Americans is the best thing. One of the issues here is we can look at how does knowledge change people's policy preferences? And we actually have lots of data on this. So there's this thing called the American National Election Studies. And every two years, they go around asking a lar- like 40,000 Americans, what do you know? What do you care? Like, what do you want to have happen in politics? And who are you? Like, are you male, female, rich, poor, etc.? And when you get all this information, you can use basically second semester statistics to figure out how does knowledge affect our policy preferences? What would happen to the American public if they were fully informed, according to the the basic quiz they get here? What would happen if they were completely ignorant? And we actually can find that the policy preferences of the American public as a whole very closely match what an ignorant public would want, and they don't very much match what an informed public would want. One, one interesting thing that happens is as Americans are, become, are better informed, they start thinking about economics issues more like the way economists do. So, for example, economists, both left and right, are very strongly in favor of free trade. Um, They're in favor of increasing immigration and so on. And we're finding the exact opposite sort of policy preferences among uh, the general population. One of the most interesting findings about voter behavior, and there's like dozens and dozens of studies showing this now, is that people don't vote their pocketbook, which is really surprising because most people are quite selfish in in their day-to-day lives. Um, They don't give that much money to charity. They don't help other people that much. Yet... For years and years, political scientists have been studying, well, do voters vote their pocketbook? And we don't just survey them. We'll, ask, we'll do independent 
thoughts like, well, this would be to your advantage. Do you vote that way? And it looks like people are actually what we would call technically nationalist sociotropes, which means that they vote for what they perceive to be the national interest. And the reason they do that appears to be because if you're selfish, you wouldn't bother vote in the first place. You better serve your self-interest by watching television or playing video games or eating a sandwich than you do for casting a vote for a person who's offering you something. So say, say Donald Trump said to me, hey, Jay Brennan, if I'm elected, I will give you a million dollars. So it's worth a million dollars for me for him to win, but right. it's not worth my time to vote for him. I'm actually more likely to die on the way to the polls in a car accident than I am to like change the outcome. So if you think of it, like again, it's like winning the lottery matters, but a lottery ticket isn't worth very much. So people, they vote to sort of express their fidelity to their sense of justice. It's They, they mean well, they just don't know a lot. That's the problem. It's not, it's not about motivation. It's about their cognition. So... You know, I, I think to a lot of people hearing this, uh, they'd think, you know, everything we've thought that's true, you're trying to debunk, that democracy is good, that the more people who vote, the better. Boy, if we could only get those millions of people who sit on the couch on election day or not, not even sit on the couch, who just go to work and don't go to the polls, um, who don't have time, you know, don't have the means, whatever. If we could get everybody out to the polls, boy, wouldn't that be better? And, and you know, when you think about um, voting, what we want to do is get more and more groups of people to be able to vote. So I think in some ways the, the conventional wisdom is no matter what you know or what you don't know, voting should be a basic human right. Yeah, that's right. Um, and there's a question of why do people think that? So I, first of all, is democracy good? I'd say yes. It's clear that de overall democracies perform better than other forms of governmental systems that we've tried. The best places to live right now are liberal democracies, not other kinds of systems. But for me, Asking whether democracy is good is like asking whether the BMW 3 Series is good. Yeah, it's good, but it could be better. It's not perfect. It has flaws. Um, so then it comes down to the question of what is the kind of value that democracy has? And a metaphor I like to use is I ask people how they value different things. I say, when you think of a hammer, you value it for its instrumental value. It serves a purpose, and you would never try to use a hammer when a wrench would work, or you'd always go for a better hammer rather than a worse one. When you think of a value of a painting, you care about who made it and what it symbolizes and what feelings it evokes. And when you think about people, you tend to think that they're ends in themselves. So then we can ask, well, what kind of value does democracy have? Is it like a hammer? Is it like a painting? Or is it like a person? And the conventional wisdom in the U.S. is that democracy has the value that a painting and a person has. It's an end in itself. It's inherently just. It expresses the right things. And what I'm trying to argue is that we should just think of democracy as being like a hammer. And if we can find a better hammer, we should use it. So one thing that's obviously happened um, in the U.S., but in other countries, too, over time, over the course of our democracy, is that more people have become able to vote, right? You had a very uh, small slice of the population originally that was allowed to cast a ballot over time, you know, minorities who weren't able to, women who weren't able to, all became part of that electorate, younger people. Um, are you saying, I mean, what's your vision? Is your vision that we cut back down again to a small slice of people who are allowed to cast a ballot? Yeah, so in the, in the past, it was just property owners uh, who could vote in the United States, male property owners, um, except for, I guess, in a few states, women could vote early. Um, and they eventually expanded that. And there are big problems with that because the people who were voting were racist. They had illiberal attitudes. They were anti-women. Um, 
And we basically expanded the right to vote at the same time that the general population also started to have favorable attitudes towards the people who'd been denied. Um, I do think that past political inequality has almost always been unjust. It's been on absurd bases, like are you Christian or are you the right religion or are you the right sex? And um, it's been insulting to people to deny them the right to vote for that reason. And in fact, they're denied the right to vote very explicitly to say that they're inferior. That said... Um, we could instead think of the right to vote as being nothing more than a plumbing license, and we could imagine like the equivalent of that. We have no real special status, and we could imagine a, a world in which, uh, or system in which, the right to vote is apportioned according to political knowledge. So, in the same way that it would be, it would make would make sense to deny someone the right to drive because he's an atheist or because he's gay, but we do deny people the right to drive if they're incompetent at driving. What if we were to do something like that with regard to voting? Your ability to vote or right to vote depends to some degree on your basic political knowledge. You know, clearly over time, uh, there have been, uh, you know, quote unquote tests given at the polls that very often were designed to uh, take certain people out of the voting pool, right, to disenfranchise them. Do you worry that a new sort of test could be in that vein of disenfranchising people? Uh, yes, I do, in a sense. Um, so for what it's worth, and I haven't really argued for this, but I, I don't think anyone has an inherent right to vote. I think the reason we should give you or me a right to vote is because of what it does for everybody, not because of what it does for you or me. But it is true that if you have any kind of test system, people are going to try to abuse it for their own benefit. I'm not as worried about it being done in a racist way now as it would have been in the past because people are just significantly less racist than they would be. And also, if there were a test like this, it's clear that everyone would be hyper vigilant looking into racial bias. So it'd be difficult to get away with it in um, the same way that when certain parties in certain states try to use voter IDs to disenfranchise people, everyone calls them on and there's a tremendous amount of attention. I think the thing here, though, to think about is not, is the system going to be perfect? Is it going to be free of failures and flaws and abuse? Of course it's not going to be. It's more of a question of, does this system with all its flaws and failures and warts work better than our current system with all its flaws and failures and warts? We're not comparing an ideal to an ideal. We're comparing a, a messed up system of one sort to a messed up system of another and asking, well, which one's better? Okay, so here you put this theory out there. In some ways, it's very, you know, we talked about this as very kind of contrary to what we all think, which is like democracy is good and as many people as can possibly vote, uh, you know, that's the best. Um, have you gotten pushback? Like, what have you heard back from people? Uh the most common objection that I get from, say, philosophers is the view that democracy is inherently just because it expresses something. That to have a democratic system is to say something about the value of people. So what I'm trying to push for is this idea that we, should, we shouldn't regard participating in politics as majestic. We shouldn't regard the right to vote as anything different from a hairdressing license or a plumbing license. But it's clear that the, the culture is definitely on the other side. Mm. When you uh, look around the country, clearly an election year, there's a lot of uh, turmoil and furor in this election. Do you see signs that people in the U.S. may be open to thinking about some sort of government that's different from the kind of democracy we have right now? I, you know, I think they are much more open. Um, and I have almost uh, <laughs> personal confirmation of this uh, 
So, you know, a couple of years ago, I, I was on a radio interview talking about the ethics of voting, another another book of mine, where I was arguing that many of us have a moral obligation to stay home, um, that it would be like it's we're not helping the country by voting and similar similar ideas for what we're talking about today. And when I was being interviewed, people would call in and just say, this is evil. You're an evil person. And I did the same interview with the same person on the same station about a year and a half later. And then people called in and said, yeah, what do we do about this? Like, you're on to something. So I, I've been joking that Donald Trump is really good for me. He's sort of uh, people look at because Donald Trump, he's a populist candidate who's running on the basis of low information, resentful voters. Um and it's clear that that's explaining part of his rise. And and people see that, you know, it's, he probably isn't going to win the election, at least as far as we can tell now. But nevertheless, like, there's something scary of that we're open to that much risk of someone like that who can just, in effect, behave like a demagogue and get support because of it. Jason Brennan is the author of Against Democracy. He's a professor of strategy, economics, ethics, and public policy at Georgetown University. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's coming like the tidal flood beneath the lunar sway. Imperial, mysterious, and amorous array. Democracy is coming to the USA. There are a whole lot of people, including me, who have been totally floored by this election. And we may have to rethink how we approach politics. But some of those people who have been floored are the people who are supposed to know what the heck is going on in elections, political scientists. But they've been balancing a couple of very unusual candidates with a field that's being reshaped by new technologies. Lynn Vavrick is a political scientist at UCLA who's been watching this political circus as well as the transformation of political science. She's the author of The Gamble, Chance and Choice in the 2012 Presidential Election. Lynn, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. So I was talking to Neil Gabler a few months back, and he's written these big books on Hollywood about Walt Disney and Walter Winchell and Barbara Streisand. And before the interview got going, we were talking, and he was saying that one reason he thinks that political scientists kind of missed what was going on here in this election is that this wasn't really a political science story. This was really uh, a media story. Uh, That's what Trump was, a media phenomenon. Do you think there's truth to that? Well, I think the first thing to keep in mind is the difference between predicting something and understanding or explaining something. And so it isn't just political scientists who didn't see Trump coming. Nobody saw Trump coming. Not political operatives, not people who have been doing this their whole careers, who are campaign consultants, candidates even, party leaders. So his rise on the scene in 2015, I think, caught everyone off guard. And maybe a little bit of that is because he was a media celebrity and nobody fully appreciated his knack for uh, dominating the, the news cycle or the television cycle. But that's quite different from being able to understand or explain his popularity after the fact. And I think we have a pretty good handle on that. How do you think technology has changed your ability to understand this election in a way that maybe four, eight, 12 years ago uh, you wouldn't have been able to? 
the technological changes that have really affected people who study campaigns and elections have been happening quickly and, as you say, in recent cycles. And the biggest one, I would say, is our ability to do public opinion surveys or polls quickly, sometimes in real time as things are happening, like debates or convention speeches, but mostly just week by week, the ability to go out and ask people questions, have that happen very quickly, get the responses back, and be analyzing the data all within a couple of days. And that really is a big change for us. Um, It lets us track opinion over time in a way that we couldn't when we were relying on in-person interviews or even phone interviews. And moreover, the internet has allowed us to build these big panels of people who were able to track the same people over the campaign. And that's hugely important if we want to measure persuasion or attitude change. And what have you seen in terms of that attitude change when it comes to the Clinton-Trump drama as it's unfolded? Well, you know, this story is often, this part of the story is often where, uh, you know, people get a little bored because there's a lot of stability in these races, in presidential races. We saw it in 2008, we saw it in 12, and we're actually seeing it in 2016 as well. Party identification is a big driver of people's vote choice. And so, for example, in these panels, we've asked people in December of 2015 who they think they're going to vote for. And we can ask them again now in October of 2016, the same people. And roughly 80% of the people are sticking with their initial preference. And maybe that sounds like a big number to you, and maybe it doesn't sound like a big number, but people tend to think that campaigns are moving large swaths of the electorate. And it's really maybe one in five voters is is the most you're going to move. Yeah, see, that is amazing to me because the fact that 80% of people are almost exactly where they were a year ago, I, I mean, it feels like poll numbers have been all over the place in this election. Well, it's important to say that people started there and are ending there, but they may have moved around in the middle. So... The swings that you see in the polls, some of that is going to be sampling noise. Um, Some of it is going to be events that are happening. Uh, The conventions we know always give a bounce, et cetera, et cetera. But people tend to come home to their party identification. And I can tell by the way you reacted to that that you think that might be a bad thing. But party identification as a cue for people who are not policy experts, for people who don't pay attention to politics that much, may not be such a bad thing. So people have something that's part of their identity, and then it takes a lot to get them unstuck from that, from that identity. Yeah, we think that part of what's going on with partisanship is that it is, for many people, an identity wound up in how they think of themselves. You're a woman or you're somebody's brother or father or mother, um, a sister, a best friend. Oh, and a Republican or a Democrat. Mm -hmm. It's part of how you think of yourself. I'm Kara Miller talking to Lynn Vavrick, a political scientist from UCLA. You've talked about there being a lot of uh, fake game-changing moments in an election where people say, well, that's a game-changer. But actually, it isn't. Um, In this election, do you think that the Access Hollywood tape, the the Donald Trump Billy Bush tape, that that was, in fact, a game-changing moment? 
or it was a fake game-changing moment? Well, it's a big moment, um, and I don't want to. I don't want to suggest that that was a routine campaign moment like we typically see in presidential campaigns. Um, that that was uh, truly in a class by itself. Now, whether we want to call it. It depends on what you mean by a game changer. Did it change the likely outcome of the election? Um, I don't know. Hillary Clinton was ahead by a little bit before that happened. She's ahead by more than that now. Might that have happened anyway? I'm not sure. Um, but it has the it has the potential to be thought of in that category of things that fundamentally changed the conversation we were having in the election and dominated the framing for the remaining couple of weeks. And a lot of that has to do with how Donald Trump responded to it um, and the things that happened in the days following. So I'm not so sure I would call it a game changer in that it doesn't look like it shifted the outcome of the race in the moment that it happened. Um, But it's definitely a very big, very big moment. And where would you put the whole controversy over whether Donald Trump is going to accept the results of the election? I mean, that that certainly could be seen as a, quote unquote, game changing moment. So I wake up some days and I think, wow, this guy's really good at getting all of us to talk about the thing he wants us to talk about. Um, And then other days I wake up and I say, wow, like he really has no idea what he says that's going to catch on fire. Um, And I don't know which one of those two things is true. But what he said in that third debate, I think, was that he wasn't sure whether he was going to accept the outcome of the election. He would let us know. He was going to evaluate it when it happened and, and keep us in suspense. And that has turned into a news story that he will not accept the outcome, um, which isn't quite what he said. And I think that today I wake up and I say, wow, he's really good at getting everyone to talk about what he wants us to talk about. Um, Because instead of talking about the many things in in that third debate that were policy oriented, or quite frankly, some of the things that could have taken the shine a little bit off of Hillary Clinton, um, we are talking about this, this dramatic sort of pause that he gave everyone about what is likely to happen on election night. Um, I don't think it's a game changer, not even close to being the same kind of thing as the video. Hmm. When you think forward in terms of uh, what kind of tools are going to be available to you in four years down the road, next presidential election, what kind of data, what kind of tools do you think you'll have at your disposal that maybe are just in the works right now? Well, I'm not sure, but I would love someday to get to a place where uh, we have a set of people, maybe it's a, a little bit like the national exit polls, which is a conglomeration um, of all major networks, uh, news outlets come together and they do this national exit poll. And maybe there's something like that, a co-op of interested parties, even think tanks and government agencies could come together to impanel a set of people who would take surveys even on their mobile devices, just maybe one shot questions. We can just fire out a question and get the data back quickly. And we know a lot about the people so we can appropriately uh, construct representative samples of the electorate or of any sampling frame we want. Um, but that it's seen as somewhat of an honor to be a participant in this, you know, wireless tracking poll for the nation or some such thing. Um, I just think we're at a moment in survey research where we 
are being pushed to innovate. Um, and we're not quite we're not quite where we're going to be uh, for the next decade or so yet. Um, and so maybe the next four years are important in that might take a little longer. Sounds like an old school focus group just kind of updated for a digital generation. Exactly, like re- but bigger, so really, really big and happening really, really fast, and everybody's not in the same place. Lynn Vavrick is a professor of political science and communication studies at UCLA. She's also a contributing columnist to the New York Times. Lynn, thank you so much. Thank you. You can subscribe to Innovation Hub by finding us on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. Or if you want to listen right off our website, you can just head to innovationhub.org. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. I went to my high school reunion not that long ago, and I had kind of a weird experience, beyond the fact that I was at my high school reunion, which itself was a weird experience. But when we all grabbed sandwiches and cookies and sat down to eat lunch, I am pretty sure we organized ourselves in exactly the same way that we had in high school. I noticed it in that moment, and I didn't think too much about it afterwards. But if that had happened when I was in high school and someone didn't choose to sit with me, that would have stuck in my head. What I didn't know then is that the teenage brain works a lot differently from the adult brain, which is probably why I haven't been analyzing that lunch situation for the past few months. A whole bunch of recent science has shown that we don't just deal with slates differently as teenagers, but also with sleep differently, marijuana, alcohol. Frances Jensen has written about these differences in the teenage brain. She's also the chair of the neurology department at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Jensen, thank you for being here. Thank you. It's great to have a chance to talk. So in your lab uh, now, you focus on very small children, right, primarily babies. And I wonder how the teenage brain became something that you were really interested in thinking about. Yes. Uh, so I, I do do a lot of work in the lab on epilepsy mm-hmm. and uh, why epilepsy happens as a disease. But then um, through another set of experiences as being a parent of <laughs> uh, two teenage sons, um, I recognized, wow, there are a lot of dynamic, dramatic, and rather drastic changes that are clearly happening later in the development of the brain. Uh, And in order to sort of try to understand what was going on in my own house, the experiment that nature was unfolding for me, (laughs) I felt that I wanted to look into the literature. And it really is an area that has been uh, largely un- uncovered until probably the last 10 years, I would say. Um, But the teenage brain had been thought to be just an adult brain with fewer miles on it. And Mm. what I was recognizing in my experience as a parent and as a neuroscientist and neurologist that that, you know, clearly did not, I did not buy that. Um, There was clearly something different going on. And and so I ended up doing a lot of research into the literature and, and finding things that normally would have probably been taken years to get out of this the 
ivory tower of you know academia into the public's hands. Mm -hmm. And it answered a lot of questions for me as to what I was seeing and helped, I think it helped me become a better parent. Um, you'd have to ask my sons for uh, <laughs> you know <laughs> validation of that. But um, I started to give like Team Brain 101 talks and things and one thing led to another and then it became clear. I probably should put this into a book because the information seemed to be very uh, useful to people about the unique strengths, the un, un, possibly untapped potential of the of the adolescent and teenage and also young adult brain, um, and then also their vulnerabilities that we don't recognize. And both of these things help debunk myths that are out there about the teenage brain, which I think cause them to sometimes be misfits in society or in families and the source of kind of a lot of negative energy. So... When is the brain, you said, you know, the brain is building throughout childhood and adolescence. When would you say, okay, that person's brain, it's pretty much done. You know, it pretty much is what it's going to be. I would say that's, it. you know, there's some gender differences with males being probably a couple of years behind for any age, you know, than females. So females will get to the final point a couple of years earlier than than males. So actually, the front of your brain gets fully connected, fully hooked up for like millisecond to millisecond signaling, not until the mid to late 20s. It's, it's there, and it's partially connected, but the final process of making it you know, fast access doesn't happen till later. So teenage adolescent time is when is a time when you don't have full access of your frontal lobe, but well, fortunately or unfortunately, you've got full access of your emotional areas of your brain. And we do see that teenagers have greater challenges um, controlling their impulses, controlling emotional lability, if you will, and are very, very susceptible to peer pressure, which is, of course, giving them emotional, you know, giving an emotional cue to them without that frontal lobe to say, bad idea, probably shouldn't, you know, shouldn't jump off that cliff, shouldn't do this. You don't have it. And so this is a, a relative weakness they have, but it also is what builds them to be novelty-seeking, right? Nature probably made it that way. So that's that helps explain. We've, I've used this analogy before just to, just to close out on this, is that people often say a teenage brain is like a Ferrari um, because of their fast synapses with weak brakes because of the lack of connection. So I want to talk about uh, addiction and the teenage brain. Do you think a 15-year-old is more likely to get addicted to something than a 35-year-old? Or are they just more likely to try something than a 35-year-old? Oh, that is a great question. And I will say it's both. So it turns out, um, and this is a fact that we're trying to really get out there into the mainstream. When you learn something through practice, repeated, you're repeatedly using a pathway to, in your brain to do whatever, a tennis you know, swing or learn a vocabulary lesson. And the more you use it, the stronger that the synapse, the bigger the synapse is going to be, the synapse is in that pathway. So, and, and this is called plasticity. This is meaning it's plastic, it's moldable by experience and use. So it's, it's happening, the more you use it, the stronger uh, a pathway gets. And in fact, that's memory, right? I mean, that's how we build skills and that's how we keep memories. Uh, and interestingly, that process called plasticity at the synapse it turns out that addiction is simply another form of learning. It's just happening in a different part of your brain, the addiction circuits, the reward systems. So repeated exposure to a drug 
the brain is adapting. It's like, oh, I'm supposed to be responding to that all the time, so I'm going to build a bigger signal for that. And it, it turns out the synapses are being built in the I want it, I want it, I want it circuit. Um, so and that's what addiction is. So teenagers actually can more powerfully and more rapidly build synapses in any circuit than adults later in life. Hence, there's nothing different except it happens to be the reward system and the areas of the brain that actually control addiction are unfortunately morphing too efficiently to that drug, and hence teenagers can be, de can be addicted faster, harder, longer, stronger than adults. And, and rehab centers are seeing this. Let me ask you about uh, two drugs or two substances that... I think many teenagers don't think are are very addictive, um, alcohol and marijuana, right? Not hard drugs, uh, but do they have the same kinds of effects? Or are they very different from what you've just described in terms of teenagers falling a lot harder for them maybe than somebody 20 years older? Uh, yes. So their brain is changing. Normal brains are still changing every day during this window. So alcohol, um, not only can alcohol definitely gets into that addiction circuit and people can get addicted faster, the everyday use of alcohol, so most drugs work at synapses. And I've just told you that teenagers have more synapses than adults. So they are going to actually be feeling a greater effect for a given amount of alcohol than an adult. It's going to be affecting more real estate in okay. the teenage brain okay. than in the adult. And it turns out that binge drinking, for instance, can actually derail some of your brain development and um, because it is having such a more powerful effect. And that, that's why people, there's a lot of conversation about the problem with binge drinking because it's such a, a potent, um, you know, has a, such a potent effect on the teenage brain. Are you saying that, like, it changes your ability to learn, it changes your IQ? I mean, can it be that powerful? Well, um, indeed, uh, that's exactly what's seen. So just moving over to cannabis, to marijuana, that is actually what has recent reports have been showing for the last five, maybe six years now, multiple reports coming out of human and animal experiments and, and human observation, is that repeated exposure to cannabis repeatedly, and I'm saying chronic daily exposure, which is something that becomes more of even more concern as it has become, it is legalized for recreational use in many states. So it's just around more, even though it's not legal for somebody under 21, mm -hmm. it's still in around and probably easily accessible. So we worry about chronic daily exposure for this exactly the reason I was talking about. You're changing the brain on a daily basis. And it turns out that this powerful effect of the teenage brain being able to learn more, a lot of literature is now showing that IQ can change in your teen years, which mm. is a, it's an amazing fact that people didn't recognize, um, which is wonderful because that means you can actually increase your IQ. But it also means that you can decrease your IQ because right. it's actually a function of how your synapses are being built. And it turns out cannabis appears to, when it's a chronic daily exposure in this one window in life, compared to a similar exposure later in life, it will actually drop your IQ. It decreases your verbal IQ, actually, more than anything, lifelong permanently. And that has been shown in numerous studies. So, so now you're talking about using marijuana like every day. I wonder if there have been studies done um, that look at more periodic use, because I would guess that a lot of teenagers fall on that side of the line where once a week or a few times a month they're, they're using pot, not, not like every day. 
Right. So what we've learned about that is obviously everybody knows that pot has an effect on your brain. We wouldn't be taking it if there wasn't some effect. People perceive uh, that it decreases their anxiety level, but it also can affect memory and sort of level of alertness, you know, depending upon how much you've smoked. Um, It turns out that when we look at like how um, learning works, how we build new synapses or, or strengthen synapses that are already there as we use them, it turns out that cannabis on episodic basis, it's going to be affecting the way you remember something when Mm. you are under the influence. We see that um, uh, levels of cannabis stay higher in the teenage brain and in animal experiments have shown this as well, um, when it might be out of your system, but it's hanging around impairing future learning for up to three to four days following an episode of getting high. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Frances Jensen, a professor of neurology and the chair of the department at University of Pennsylvania. She's also author of The Teenage Brain. I wonder, when you were looking into the literature about teenagers and how their brains work, and, you know, you were raising teenagers yourself, what were other things that really surprised you and you didn't realize in in thinking about how brains work in that uh, period of time when, when kids are sort of just coming into their own? Sure. Uh, well, a couple of things. One is is trying to explain their rather um, odd sleep habits. <laughs> and it turns out that there's definitely neurobiology to explain why their sleep cycle is not like it will be later when they're adults. And it turns out that uh, there's biology behind why they're, they seem to be falling asleep several hours later than adults. We all put out something called melatonin, which kind of kickstarts uh, the process of going to sleep in our brains. And um, that in adults, it's usually coming out probably 8.45 or 9 o'clock in the evening. Well, um, nature has built their brains uh, such that in this developmental window, they don't release it till two or three hours later. So they're going to sleep more like midnight. And then they need their full night's sleep. So to get their nine plus hours of sleep, that takes them way past 6 or 7 a.m. And that's an issue, obviously, because yeah. we have a lot of sleep-deprived, you know, adolescents around. Well, it is tricky. I, I just have to say it's tricky because we've constructed our school days so that a right. lot of kids have to be at school at 8, sometimes earlier. If, you know, sometimes there'll be like an early band tra- practice, an early swim practice or that kind of thing. I mean, you know, kids are getting up at the crack of dawn very often. I know. And that's one of the things that, you know, again, uh, the neuroscience would suggest, you know, we need to accommodate for this in some way. We obviously can't change society and make society start at 11 in the morning because just the workday, it doesn't work that way. And you're not going to have be able to shift all of society. But what we can think about, one way I've often explained it is because of this going to bed a lot later, when you wake a kid up at six or seven in the morning yeah. to get on a bus, that's like waking an adult up at 3 a.m., right? That's the same place in mm. the sleep process. And would you like to be, you know, hauled into work at that point? I would you wouldn't not. Really, right. <laughs> it wouldn't be a great feeling. And so we risk, A, chronic sleep deprivation, and B, we may want to think about what can the brain actually do when it's really trying hard to sort of wake itself up. Maybe that's not the time to start the SATs, you know, yeah. at, at seven, at eight o'clock in the morning. Maybe where we should postpone them until, you know, starting a little later in the morning. And actually, interestingly, this has been a lot of school districts who've now been made aware of this kind of science have actually modified their um, day, maybe start with a study hall, start with maybe a athletic part of the day or 
more often something that isn't a rigorous exam and then postpone when they have exams at the end of the you know season do them later in the day and i think kids really appreciate that in fact when you think about colleges because again i just pointed out that your brain is not you're only 18 when you're entering college and you're only 22 generally when you're leaving college or, or thereabouts this process isn't done yet. And you think about how popular all the evening courses and seminars are and the late mornings that really the, it, the college environment is greatly adapted to this part of, you know, to this aspect of biology. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. People, do, it's very often in a group of friends, one person has like the 8 a.m. course and everybody feels very badly for them. Yeah, <laughs> right. Right. So, and then to get to you, what was it, what's another thing yeah. that I think about? Yeah. Well, um, a, one thing is about uh, the emotional lability, the, the emotionality of a teenager. We as adults go, what is the big deal? You know, you're, you're treating this minor thing that somebody said to you or they wore the same clothes as like a crime against humanity, you know, international <laughs> incident, what's going on? And actually, when you study the parts, what, what researchers have done is they've looked at um, the parts of your brains, especially the amygdala, part of your brain uh, in this uh, emotional part of your brain called the limbic system that controls emotion and, and also this addiction phenomenon, reward phenomena. And one of the kinds of imaging allows you to actually see what part of the brain is sort of turning on or is metabolically active during a specific task. So in this case, what they looked at was they showed kind of concerning images and wanted to see, you know, was there a bigger response um, of the teenage brain than the child or the adult? Mm -hmm. And several studies have now shown that absolutely yes. Uh, Functional MRI, the signal lights up even more you know, significantly more, just between 15 and 25 years of age. And the children and the adults are at lower levels for a given stimulus. So, you know, really begins to show that they're really perceiving uh, that emotional stimulus. Their brain is, is reacting to it much more, and they can't, they can't control that. Right. So that is helpful to know as a parent, you know, that there is this in, inherent emotional ability that, that is just part of growing up. I mean, it sounds like you're saying they're, they're, they're hypersensitive, naturally right. so. Yes, and we need to rem- remind that, you know, because uh, adults will look at a teenager, they'll get really annoyed, they'll transpose their own value system and their own ability to um, control their impulses onto the teenager, and it's A, it's just not going to happen. It just, their wiring is not there, and B, that reaction that you think is just so ridiculous is one that is almost uncontrollable, if you will. It's, it's, it's the biology that they have. So as parents and, you know, teachers and other folks interacting with teenagers, we have to remember that their perception of reality is a little different from ours. Uh, Their ability to control themselves and to not take a risk uh, is, is, is impaired compared to an adult. And, and we can't, Anger is probably not the best way to manage this. It's it's with some understanding and also to begin to be, I always say, as as we adults, last I checked, did do have our frontal lobes attached, we should be giving these teenagers a frontal lobe assist. And we, you know, we can guide them and give and and sort of role model for them and work out, you know, their organ they're very challenged when it comes to, you know, organizational, uh, you know, um, c- tasks like what goes before what and how to get something done most efficiently, and also anticipating a risk. And you, they are eminently teachable. So part of approaching them is to be a little bit more explicit about those things. And I think it helps. It's it. There's there's no panacea, but I think it helps. 
Do you feel like um, this changed your parenting? You know, if you go back to the time before you had read a lot of this literature and really explored it, and then, you know, after, and you, you really started to absorb it and understand it, could you detect a difference in how you yourself acted as a parent? I I do. I think so. I think I I really tried to. I was single parenting at the time, so um, I didn't. Wa- I couldn't afford to have alienation, you know, of to, of my kids. Mm-hmm. I, I I wanted to understand what was going on, and I think I turned what could have been frustration and anger that we all can. You know, some teenage behavior will elicit this in almost everybody to more curiosity and going, okay, I, you know, there's a, there's a process behind this and I'm going to, I do have a frontal lobe and I'm going to mute my response to this. Um, I also, you know, wanted to spend, take a positive on this and really tell them, you know, what an opportunity this window still was that, you know, we'd never knew it um, before this last decade or so that, that there was such a capacity to change your IQ Right. In this window. What right. can you do with that piece of information? Actually, a lot. And if they're mindful of the fact that they actually have kind of a competitive edge at this point, I think it's a very hopeful thing to tell them. Um, so I, I would share this, and and um, I think it helped. I really do. Yeah, they learned a lot about the teenage brain, is what you're saying. They did learn a lot about the teenage <laughs> brain, and they then unfortunately got to be, ex- you know, examples I would use of themselves on themselves. But yeah. Frances Jensen is author of the book, The Teenage Brain. She's also chair of the Department of Neurology at the University of Pennsylvania. Frances, thank you so much. Thank you, it was really great to talk about this. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugars. We also had production help from Jonathan Gang. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Public Radio International. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1.